Today's scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 14 to 26, which can be found on your pew Bibles on page 1029. Luke, chapter 11, 14 to 26. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is, is, if Satan is divided against itself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out the demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which he, the man has trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Exorcism Sunday at Knox Church. Uh, just as a warning too, I've had a cold all week and I'm just getting over it. So it's sort of to add production value to the sermon. You might think that sounds like a man possessed at times, right? As my voice sort of goes all over the place. I hope you'll be able to hear uh, well today. Um, before we get into this passage, we really need to pray about this, don't we? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty, the depth, the riches of your word. And we pray that today you would speak to us. Lord, this is a passage upon initial reading. It is, it's wild. We pray that you would calm any fears that we might have about it. May we trust you, Jesus. You're gentle and you are gonna lead us into all truth. So speak, Lord. Your servants listen. 
Amen. I don't usually bring a water bottle up, but today I'm going to need it. Well, what a wild story we've just heard, right? It is an uncomfortable story, I think, for some of us as we've read this. And part of the discomfort is it gives us a glimpse into a slice of reality that a lot of us don't want to acknowledge, rarely acknowledge, or try to push aside the reality of evil and evil forces in the world. Um, a teacher, a professor at Columbia University, uh, Andrew Del Blanco, once wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And in the opening pages of the book, he writes this, he, quote, it says, a gulf has opened up between the visibility of evil in the world and the intellectual resources available to deal with that evil. Del Blanco, you got to know, was what you might consider a very secular, liberal person. But as he thought about his family and his relatives who were gassed in Nazi gas chambers, in concentration camps, he thought it's just way too superficial to say the Nazis had bad parents or it was cultural influences, or it was, you know, bad DNA. He would say certainly those were factors in it, but he said, he's, my only other conclusion is there was a transcendent force of evil operative in that time and era as well. And he cautions us that when, we're, when we cease to be able to imagine or to name evil, even if it's in horror movies, like us, or serious literature or daily conversation, when we're no longer able to imagine or name evil, it will gain mastery over us, he says. And this is someone who's a secular, liberal professor at Columbia University saying this. And that's helpful for us as we consider the troubles we face. As we think about all those troubles, and there's many factors involved in all those troubles, but if we cease being able to name the reality of spiritual attack, it will, our troubles will gain mastery over us. Scripture, on this story in particular, teach the reality that there are forces of evil at play, at work in this world. Now, I know for many especially in our Western culture, the immediate reaction is, seriously, come on, you do not expect me to believe that, do you? I mean, have we not progressed a little bit over time? I mean, we are an age of science, we've got Wikipedia, we've got the internet, seriously. And I realize this is a struggle for many of us. Maybe some of us here today, but certainly for the people you work with, the people in your neighborhoods, the people you room with or go to school with. But I think the challenge for us is if, if you struggle or if you know people struggling with accepting the reality of supernatural forces, would you consider that perhaps your view of reality is too simplistic? Torontonians want to be sophisticated, right? Nuanced. But could it be that not recognizing a bigger multidimensionality of reality, the spiritual depth dimensions of reality, you are being simplistic? And if you struggle, here's another thing. Could it be that you're actually being culturally narrow in your worldview too? 
because Western white people have a lot of trouble believing in supernatural forces, but that is not true of the rest of the world. Talk to people from Africa, Latin America, Asia, they have no trouble believing in a spiritual realm and spiritual powers. That means there's a collected wisdom there in those cultures. Are you going to look down on the wisdom of those cultures? Why not be open to what other cultures might have to speak to us? What if what Jesus is dealing with and teaching about here, what if Jesus knows better than you or I about the true nature of reality? What if the Bible and other cultures have a deeper lens into the dimension of reality that we in the Western secular world are so blind to? And what if that deeper view into reality equips us to better face the troubles that we experience in our lives. During Lent, we're exploring these, these troubles that Jesus said, you're going to have them, you're going to face them. Life is difficult, you know it. That's one of the first lessons we all need to learn. Life is hard, it is filled with trouble. Don't expect the cakewalk. There's hard things. And we're looking to Jesus for how we might live in the middle of those troubles and sufferings, but do it with the hope the fierce hope that Jesus has overcome the world. Now, as we do this, we want to be very careful to understand and name the complexity of our troubles. The Bible presents to us, uh, I think, one of the most complex, nuanced, multidimensional views of reality. It doesn't reduce all our troubles to one plane. It doesn't say, yep, it's all spiritual. It doesn't say it's all physical. It's all psychological. No, no, no. It, it, there, it, there's a broad multidimensionality. And throughout this series, as we explore the troubles we face, we want to be careful about our language um, and about how we speak about these troubles. And we want to, we're going to cover a wide range of matters because we do not want to reduce all our troubles to spiritual or physical or psychological. If we do that, it's, those troubles will defeat us. One of the tools that we've developed the past couple of weeks is a tool, a resource around mental health and the troubles we face. Because we know mental health issues are real, and we do not want people to get those matters confused with, let's say, spiritual matters. You know, sometimes people might try to address mental health issues by saying, you just got to pray a little more, or you just got to believe a little more. And that, that's not the case, right? And so we've developed sort of a theology of mental health issues because mental health is among us. It's here. It's us. And so we want to clearly distinguish that reality from some of the other troubles we face. And so there's a resource on the information tables um, and in our website. Do check that out, okay? Because it's important for us to just get good clarity on this. Um, but one of the important realities as we consider this all is that there is a thing called spiritual attack. And if we do not know it, and if we do not how to handle it, our troubles are going to master us. That is distinct, spiritual attack is distinct from mental illness, from psychological, from physiological troubles. Now, it may be a factor in those, but it is not solely defined by those. It's distinct. And the reality is that our lives are influenced and troubled by spiritual forces of evil. This gospel story from Luke, it's, it's, it's very interesting how the story is introduced. With utmost casualness, we read Jesus driving out a demon. 
You know, without any introduction, it calmly tells us that Jesus was driving out a demon. Jesus teaching, Jesus eating with his disciples, Jesus healing, Jesus casting out a demon. Just a normal, everyday life in the life of Jesus. Now, of course, this was a regular part of the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of healing of Jesus. It was, it was this power of liberation that Jesus exercised. It was a ministry of freedom. That phrase, the finger of God, it's actually a reference to Exodus, um, where the, the Egyptian magicians uh, cannot replicate the miracles and the power that Moses is demonstrating. And so it, it says that it was only these miracles come through the finger of God. And here, Jesus is demonstrating such power that it is of God himself. This is the finger, the hand of God at work. Jesus uh, bringing freedom. This is part of the kingdom of God, bringing liberation for you, for me. Liberation and freedom from within our troubles. Now, in engaging these, these demons, Jesus is showing us an important slice of reality. There is a spiritual realm and a reality, and, and what he's demonstrating to us is that this world that we live in, it is a contested space. There is a war going on, and it is not a war against people. We've got to remember what the Apostle Paul wrote about in Ephesians. He says, your struggle, your war battle is not against flesh and blood but it is against rulers and authorities, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's where the battle is situated. But this world, it is not a neutral space. It is a contested space. There is a war going on. And C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Which means to follow Jesus know means you know you're involved in a battle and you act appropriate to that you don't put on a picnic in the middle of a battlefield do you no you're engaged you're ready you're prepared and we realize that spiritual attack is part of this life and so for the christians there's an enemy and again it's not other people okay that is not our enemy our enemy the bible says is satan the devil and of him, Jesus says, that thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He is at war with God. He is at war with God's vision of the good, the true, the beautiful. He is trying to vandalize all that is good, true, and beautiful. His intent, Satan's intent, is to burn it all down, to ruin your soul, to ruin uh, your life to suck your joy. This is his intent, his agenda. But here's some good news. We need to also know this battle is not a battle between equal forces. Jesus lays out the scene really clearly here. Um, often when we think of a battle, we think of a battle between two equal but opposing forces, right? Uh, people, forces of equal strength come and duke it out. But the Bible tells us, no, 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 you know what? Satan is a defeated enemy. Look at how Jesus lays it out. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. He's referring to Jesus and any person, any life that he might have. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Jesus is that someone stronger? 
He is the strong man who overcomes the enemy, and he has done this through his death and his resurrection. Listen to how the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 frames or describes that defeat. He says, Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, that's, that's some powerful language to frame a defeat, right? Imagine um, a Toronto Maple Leaf player describing a victory. When was the last time the Leafs won? It seems like they're doing a whole lot of losing these days, but I think it was last, this past week against the Sabres. Imagine a reporter, a sports reporter, after the game, you know, going to Austin Matthews, one of the Leafs stars, and saying, hey, how'd the game? Tell us about it. You know, and Austin Matthews saying, yeah, you know what? We played a solid game, and then, you know, spinning off of the usual cliches that come about. We all played team together, whatever else it is. What if, what if Austin Matthews used the language of Colossians? You know, as we played the Sabres, we disarmed any hockey ability of that team. We utterly humiliated them. Uh, we made a public spectacle of them. That is how good this victory was. <laughs> Not just beat them. No, no, no. This was utterly humiliating. This is what Jesus has done in the cross over our enemy through his death on the cross so this war is not between equal forces. We've got to know that. There are forces of evil still in play, but they're defeated. They're humiliated by the cross. They've been disarmed. They have been made a spectacle of by the cross. But they can still do some damage. So it's really important for us to understand the stratagems, the, the, the plans of the enemy as they still operate. Now think about that with that metaphor of war in your mind. How does a defeated or marginalized enemy still fight? You know, they're going to engage in something like guerrilla warfare because they know they cannot meet, match their opponent, right? That the, the forces are just unequally balanced. And so they not, cannot come on the battlefield head on and face to face meet their enemy. So they need to use irregular means. It's what some people call asymmetrical warfare. Asymmetrical warfare is when one opponent who has the lesser power, the lesser means, is going to engage in irregular means of warfare. And today, there is that sort of warfare going on all across the world, causing every sort of social confusion, fomenting disorder and division in the world. And here it is. It is a campaign of disinformation. The strategy that some places and countries are using is the weaponization of information. That is how you fight an asymmetrical battle. And so countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia are not using tanks and bombs against Western cultural forces. Instead, you know what they have? They have troll farms. They have factories of people behind computers who are creating fake accounts and using social media, and they have bots that will steal data and send all sorts of spam, creating all sorts of disinformation and lies. And those bots, you gotta know how powerful this technology is. They monitor all of our social media feeds and participation, and they have such 
algorithmic accuracy, they can know when you are most emotionally receptive to disinformation. Because perhaps through Google, they've seen that you, at 11.30 at night, ask, how's the economy doing? Because you're a little anxious. Um, they can match and send disinformation at appropriate times when we are at our most vulnerable. This, this is like real stuff. And it's interesting. I read a report that shows how an alt-right Facebook site and a Black Lives Matter Facebook site were traced back to a Russian troll factory. And they were using those sites to foment some dissension. That should give us all pause, right, about making sure that whatever we repost, we're, sh we're fairly sure about. One of the most effective, powerful ways of warfare is through disinformation, causing social unrest, massive cultural confusion. That's part of happening in this world. Now think about this with me. This is precisely the form of spiritual warfare, that, of spiritual attack that we experience from our enemy. The enemy of God's kingdom is a disempowered enemy, but still uses the strategy of weaponizing information, of ideas, of thoughts, and philosophies. And they are aimed to deceive, to cause us to doubt, to disrupt you from community, from faith. Because the elemental forces of evil cannot match God in power, right? The cross has made a public spectacle of them. They're humiliated, and yet they're still fighting. And so they engage in a war against truth. They're still fighting, and they wage this war against truth. And we see this throughout Scripture. Like, this is the primary strategy of the enemy. The primary category of spiritual attack throughout Scripture is the category of truth and lies. Now, in this story, we read certainly there's other engagement with the enemy. Exorcisms, demon uh, casting out demons, demons manifesting themselves. Those are part of this reality of spiritual attack, but it's a, it's a limited part. The far larger strategy of spiritual attack is lies. That's, that's like the signature move of the enemy, right? Deceptive ideas, mistruths, lies. The, the devil is called the father of lies. Jesus, in John chapter 8, says this about the enemy. He says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So you, there's a reality of spiritual evil. There's a devil. And his intent is to ruin all the good of God in this world. And his primary strategy against you and me is a campaign of disinformation, of lies. Think about how he's done that. Think of Jesus in the wilderness. Remember Jesus fasting 40 days in the wilderness? And at the very end, this enemy comes along. And what does he do? He says, if you're the son of God, right? Let's just cast a little doubt on your identity. If you're the son of God. Or Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The serpent comes along to, Adam, uh, to Eve and says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from that tree? Just a thought, right? Just an idea inserted in your mind to unsettle, to disrupt. And then when Eve responds and says, well, we can't only eat 
of that. We can't eat of that one tree. Satan again responds with lies. You know why? Because God doesn't want you to be like him. You eat from that fruit, you will be like God. That form of attack, it's subtle, it's crafty, but think of it, it's just an idea, a doubt, disinformation. This is the primary form of spiritual attack that you and I experience that cause so much trouble in our lives. Deceptive ideas that target some of the disorienting of our hearts, you know, those places where we're weak. Maybe it's our fear, our anxiety, or our pride. And it caused such trouble because when we believe lies, if, if we live as if a lie is the truth, tragically what happens is that lie becomes real in our lives. Think about this. If you have heard, whispered in your ear, in your heart, this lie that you are unlovable, and that's one that is Satan profoundly uses for many of us. You are someone less than. You are not worthy of love or respect. And maybe you've heard that because of an experience you've had. Maybe because there's a parent wound somewhere in your background. Maybe a painful relationship. Maybe you have a body or a personality that doesn't fit the social cultural norm. But if you believe that, it's still not true, right? It's still a lie. But if you believe that long enough, you begin to live as if it's true. And it begins to to shape all of your life. It discolors your relationships, how you respond to others in community, how you relate to people of the opposite sex. And tragically, what happens is that lie can become true in your life. You become defensive and insecure and brittle or aloof in relationships or angry, you become less than fully human. Your soul gets curdled, tattered. You become the kind of person that is unlovable or hard to love until you're set free from that lie through the truth of Jesus Christ. That is spiritual attack, friends. That's how it plays out. Deceptive ideas that trick us the lie that gets normalized in our culture so that, of course, it looks normal. It even looks good. Think of our culture's idea of beauty, of just the right body shape, of just the right size and weight, of right skin tones and facial dimensions. That culturally normatized, normative idea of beauty is spread universally is a lie that has done untold damage in so many people's lives. You see how that works? And there's so many ways this this strategy of lies and disinformation plays out. Let's just think through a few. One of the more recent damaging deceptions of the enemy is to trick you and I that believing what we do here in worship is really without much meaning at all. It is worthless. You know, and so we think, do I really need to go to worship today? What's the harm in missing a week? Two weeks? Really? Can I, can I be a Christian without going to church? Really, I think I can, right? That is what Colossians calls a hollow and deceptive philosophy. Because what you and I do in worship is spiritually powerful. 
And the enemy does not want that to happen. God dwells in the praises of his people in worship as we affirm the truth and the beauty of who God is, his character and his power, something palpable happens. What we do here is we rehearse the real story of the world. Our worship is a taste of God's new order. And so when we worship and in our prayers and our praises in the proclamation of the word, that is warfare where the kingdom gets advanced. When we take a Sabbath, when we rest in God's provision, when we pursue a life of obedience, of holy and pure lives in a city that celebrates unholiness and impurity as a virtue, that is a powerful act of warfare. Another form of these hollow, deceptive ideas, philosophies that form attack is, is a deceptive idea about who you are, your identity. Our enemy does not want you to realize who you really are. And so, will slip into your mind, your imagination, a whole assortment of ideas, deceptive ideas, lies about who you are, twisted ideas about who we are. This is one of the most potent and common areas of spiritual attack. So many people live with distorted ideas false identities of who we are. We live in a time where there's not a coherent story to bring meaning to our lives. And so what happens in the absence of that is we construct our own identities. This is the modern condition. One sociologist, Peter Berger, writes this. He says, modern man is afflicted with a permanent identity crisis. Any sense of self we have, it's been unsettled, undermined, deconstructed. And so we're constantly shape-shifting our identities, right? We're pressured to be one thing at school, and then we're something else at home, something else at church, still something else at work, and then online, well, I can have five or six avatars or identities, right? And so we got this whole pastiche of identities, and we no longer know who we are. We're looking all around us for some sense of who we are, and we hear so much disinformation, and it leaves us fragmented and fragile at the center. And so you need to hear truth today about who you are, about your identity in Jesus Christ. And I don't care how real those lies have become in your life, those false ideas, those false identities, those are attacks of the enemy to steal and to kill and to destroy the work of God in you. The truth about you is you are God's beloved child. Full stop. Your truest identity is you are a cherished child of God, created in God's image, you are given dominion to rule this world. Yes, this is who you are. You are a beloved son and daughter of the king. You are someone who bears God's royal, holy presence to this world. The king, the God, the creator God who created mountains and spun galaxies into space. This God invites you and me to join him in his work of redemption. Do you know who you are, friends? This is the truth. You know, the best way that we are going to live and serve this city of Toronto is if we begin to disobey the narratives that Toronto sends our way. You know, because here's the thing. You are not simply a worker climbing a corporate ladder of success. 
You are not an urban lifestyle consumer of all the good things the city has to offer. You are not a free spirit indie person who is creating your own self and identity. You need to disobey that narrative because then you'll truly know who you are and how to serve the city. Now look globally because you see this campaign of disinformation about who we are all over the world right now. The elemental forces are stirring up false ideas about racial superiority. They are stirring up racial hatred and white supremacy. We are seeing it all over and it is tragic. It is creating violence and division and this is a work of the devil. The kingdom of God stands opposed to all of those things. That is lies and deceptions about who we are because no matter what race, no matter what ethnicity, we are created in the image of God. We are precious and holy in his sight. Our enemy attacks by deceiving us about our thoughts about people around us, your coworkers, your fellow students, your friends, your neighbors. We're tricked into thinking everyone is doing just fine, right? We are shiny, happy people. We are complete. We have it together because the enemy does not want you to see and know that deep down we have this profound hunger and longing for God, this spiritual hunger. And unless we know God, we will live lonely, hungry, isolated lives. You need to know that about your neighbors, about your coworkers. This is the truth about them. Spiritual attack comes to us in misinformation about what time it is about where in the story of history we are. We, I find we do not know sufficiently where we are in the story of God that he is writing in this world. Our culture encourages us to live in the moment. You know what, just satisfy all those uh, desires you have, simply live in this present moment. But we do not realize this present moment occurs between the death resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and his return. This is the time of the church. This is the time of the Spirit, where God's Spirit is releasing people on God's mission, which means you and I, we are here at this time for purpose. Your presence in this city at this time, in this postmodern context, in 2019, it is no mistake. Do you know why God has you here at this time? Find yourself in God's time, in God's story. Don't let the enemy tell you something else. One more, one more before we're done. Spiritual attack, one more hollow, deceptive philosophy or idea that I need to name. And I need to name it because I, my fear is it's taken root among so many in Christian circles. And it is this. The enemy deceives us to think, I can have all this great Christian stuff, Right? I love the community of church. I love that we fight for justice and we're concerned about the poor. We can have all these, these good things from the Christian faith, the sense of meaning and faith, that, that, that we can enjoy a safe, spiritual place in the Christian community and yet all the while keep ourselves open to all the things of the world. The elemental forces deceive us by saying, yeah, 
you can have this good Christian stuff, passion for justice, right? The concern for the poor. But you can have your foot over here too. I can have full autonomy over my life. No commitments. And I can take a pass on all the various pieces of Christian living and morality. Now, isn't this exactly what Jesus is teaching in this parable here? Jesus sets up this clear need to fully align with him and his kingdom. He says, whoever is not for me is against me. Who's ever not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And if we still don't get the point, Jesus tells a pretty jarring parable, doesn't he? About someone whose life has been liberated from spiritual attack. The house is swept nicely in order, but the strong man, Jesus, does not fill the house. Jesus does not inhabit the place. And what happens is that seven more spirits come and the worst mess happens than even before. One of the most deceptive ideas of spiritual attack in our day and age is one of spiritual compromise. Instead of obedience to Jesus, we think we can pick and choose what we like about Christianity and pick and choose what we like about the world around us. We're in charge of how we live, and we end up being people who we think are called by Jesus, but we're held captive deceptive philosophies. We can have faith and worship and yet unholy soul ties to the world. In a city that says, be true to yourself, which really is code for give in to whatever desires your heart wants without any filters, without any limits. Jesus says, live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Where in your life have you given a foothold to the devil where you have just made it easier for spiritual attack to happen, for trouble to start coming into your life? What parts of your life have you said to Jesus, you can't go there? Sunday, it's yours, Jesus. Prayer life, mm, you got it. But my bedroom, off limits. My workplace, don't go there. My money, uh-uh. Trust Jesus today, would you trust the strong man to not only clean house, but to live in the house, to lead your life, to guide it? Here's the fascinating thing about truth and lies. They have zero power in your life unless you internalize them, unless you assimilate them into, unless you believe them. Every day you hear all assortment of truth and lies and it never affects you because you never internalize it. Unless it gets internalized, then the power and authority of that truth or that lie is set loose in your body, and it will lead you to death or it'll lead you to life. If we want to follow Jesus in our time and place, we need to find a way to guard and guide our thought life. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, to take every thought captive. That challenge for disciples of Jesus is, is to adopt sort of this counter-formation practice. And, and Christians have done that throughout time by immersing themselves in the truth of God's Word. And I cannot encourage you to do that frequently, regularly. It is a way to work against the onslaught of ideas, of deception, of lies, of our world around us. To own the truth of Jesus instead of letting the lies own us. Isn't that what Jesus did when he was tempted? He fought back with Scripture, with true ideas to counteract the false ones. 
And for thousands of years, this is what the Christians have done as well. This week, immerse yourself in the truth of Jesus. Read, reread Scripture in which we're taught to think and act like Jesus, to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because the enemy comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus has come so that you might have life, and life to the full. So take heart, friends. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father of truth, Father of light, in you there is perfect light. God, we thank you that you are the source of all that is good and true and beautiful. We confess, God, that in many ways we have opened ourselves to so much deception. And we recognize this is a form of attack and and we're susceptible to it, God. And so we pray that you would fill us with your truth and may we actively engage that reality, God, seeking out your truth in Scripture. But God, we pray right now, and let's take a moment, friends, right now in quiet to ask the Spirit to show us where our minds and hearts have have accepted deceptive thoughts and ideas that we believe are true but are in fact are lies. Take a moment to simply ask the Spirit to point those out to you. Now, whatever those lies or deceptions are that we have come to accept as true, would you offer them to Jesus? If you simply say, Jesus, I have accepted a counterfeit. Maybe that's about who you are, about friends, about the world you live in, about your calling. Jesus, we have accepted counterfeits of the real life that you offer to us. And would you come through your Holy Spirit's cleansing power and cleanse our minds and imaginations of all that is deceitful, that is untrue, because we want to be people aligned with reality, with truth. Holy Spirit, be our counselor, be our guide. Thank you for your residence within each one of us. Thank you that you promised to lead and guide us into all truth. And so we commit ourselves in a fresh way to know, to receive, and to live out the truth that you speak. In the beautiful name of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, we pray. Amen.